All right, if you open your Bibles to the uh, book of Exodus, you think, oh, well, we're talking about Christmas. We are. We're going to uh, mix it all together. I am so impressed that there's more than five people here. Um, I thought for sure we were going to do the garage days where we set up a bunch of lawn chairs and just kind of pray that someone decides to pop into our little building, but there was more people here, which is very encouraging. Uh, we had to cancel last week because I came down at 5.30 and there were like accidents all over 4th Street, and I was like, this probably wouldn't be very good, so I couldn't, uh, we, we didn't want to cancel. Once I got studs on my, on my car, I figured, well, I'm going to be there, so Brad said, I'm going to be there, so I said, hey, you can sing to me, and I'll preach to you, and we'll be good. So uh, I was ready to scream at five people if they were here, but since there's more than that, we can scream a lot more, so great. Uh, we'll have the kids singing at the end. And uh, that should be interesting because they haven't practiced for like two weeks. So uh, it'll be like your Charlie Brownish style, all sing-along, kids picking their nose, not paying attention. It'll be awesome. Um, so we'll have that at the very end. It should be fun. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, well, a lot about Christmas in particular. I've noticed, and I don't know if you have, over the last couple of weeks, it really begins, starting to begin before Thanksgiving now, but right after Thanksgiving there seems to be, um, a lot of conflict about Christmas, and this was uh, very true for me when I was in the high school. When I teach in the high school, there was always the, like the taboo thing: what are you going to call it? Hol- you know, holiday season, winter season. Could you say Christmas? Me, I'd run around going, you know, Happy Birthday Jesus, and all these um, weird things to make them upset. And but there was seems like in the last couple of weeks, and this happens more and more each year, is that both the religious and the irreligious weirdos kind of come out. And you don't hear about them as much during the year, but during Christmas in particular, um, they start going at each other over all kinds of, I think, quite dumb things. Um, And it starts infiltrating the TV, it starts infiltrating the computer, our emails, I get mail, my mailbox is full of like, Things from churches and things from organizations against churches and all kinds of things like this battle going on about who owns the holiday and what Christmas is all about. And it seems like um, they're getting more hostile, especially this year. And I can't figure out why the people who are irreligious or that are not Christians really care um, if someone wants to celebrate Christmas or, you know, wants to you know, encourage themselves in their own delusion as they might see it, um, as long as they get their days off and they get presents and, you know, why it really matters to them. But I'm even more confused, I guess, or concerned as why Christians or the religious expect those people to behave like they're Christians. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, They expect them and kind of act hostile towards them. These are the Christians I'm talking about towards the world because they're not respecting this holiday that I'm not sure why they expect them to respect. Um, it doesn't make sense. I see, I personally, maybe you didn't, received an email, and it might have came in the mail as well, from a very well-respected Christian organization this year, and they made themselves a Christmas-friendly shopping guide. Have you heard about this? And in their Christmas-friendly shopping guide, it was a guide to help Christians determine which retailers made, quote, virtually no use of Christmas in their promotions and which ones did. And it was a guide to go patron 
the ones that I guess say Merry Christmas or use the word Christmas in their ads and in their signage and, and in their stores or their catalogs or what have you. And I guess the message, you know, if I was coming from the opposite side, I guess the message I would think is being communicated is that, you know, if you don't recognize that the reason for the season is the birth of Jesus, then we're going to punish you by not buying your stuff. Um, which really seems a little misplaced or a little confusing to me, maybe not to you. But their hope seems that, you know, if they hurt these businesses in their pocketbook, then suddenly their hearts will change, um, or at least their message will change, and they will proclaim Merry Christmas because everyone thinks of Jesus when they see the Merry Christmas placards on the JCPenney catalog, um, I guess, which is confusing to me. But it seems like um, both, um, both sides of these groups are, are very wrapped up in the appearances of who owns this holiday. And celebrating, in this case, this organization celebrates anything that just has Christian on it or denounces anything that doesn't. In our own capital this year, you might have heard, there was a lot of, I mean, it hit head on. Um, someone put a nativity scene, they put a bunch of stuff for the capital. They put a nativity scene this year and they put a holiday tree um, at the capitol in the capitol building. And this year... Uh, an atheist organization put up a sign that said this right next to it. So it was like, tree, baby Jesus, sign, big sign. And the sign said this. You may have heard about this. Quote, there are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven or hell. There is only our natural world. Religion is but a myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. That's what it said. I kind of giggled when I, I heard about it. Like, that's kind of silly. But, once again, and it seems like you have these two sides of this kind of coin, if you will, arguing and campaigning about what they're against and not really saying anything that they're for, but what they do hate and denounce. Um, As a believer in the Bible, the thing that came to my mind was in the Psalms, when it says, a fool says in his heart that there is no God. Kind of like, that's pretty foolish. But it didn't take long for the Christian troops to rally and put up their own sign right next to the other sign. So now you have a Christmas tree, holiday tree, nativity, atheist sign, and a Christian sign or a religious sign. And the religious sign said that there is one God. Atheism is but a myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. And you can understand it just said the exact same thing, but opposite. And I couldn't help but think of what the Bible says again. In Proverbs 26, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become him like yourself or be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And it's like, okay, what are we as Christians communicating by throwing up your sign next to them too? Are you really accomplishing anything? So there's this battle going on over Christmas. Who gets Christmas? And despite the fact that Christmas has been a holiday since 1870, Ulysses S. Grant, and it was a holiday according to law that says, this is to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. It's on the books. So legally, it's what it is. That's why you get your day off. But you have the religious side organizing boycotts and all kinds of things. And then you have the irreligious putting up signs. One going, I want to put Christ back in Christmas. And one saying, 
We want to take him out. And depending on who wins, I guess uh, Christmas is either about just giving and family or it's about Jesus. But even that answer for me doesn't seem to be enough. When your child, and I know a lot of people have children in here, ask you what Christmas is about, I think our tendency is to say, oh, it's about Jesus, about the birth of Jesus, and stop there and never really explore what it's about and say, oh, it's not about Santa. No, no, it's not about Santa. I mean, Jesus is the reason for the season. And we say that phrase over and over again. Jesus is the reason for the season. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sounds good, feels good. It's very anti Whatever. But my question for us, I guess, today and for myself that I've been kind of wrestling with this week is that, yeah, Jesus is the reason for the season, but do we know the reason for Jesus? I mean, do we go any further past that? Is, uh, is our faith in Jesus and the celebration of the birth of Christ just the thing we do? Oh, we make sure we pray right before we open our presents. Has any significance to us? Do we celebrate it really at the core of it? If we're really honest with ourselves, any differently than anyone else in the world? Do we view it differently? I'm not sure that we do. And I think, as we've studied Exodus, just by, because that's what we're in, I believe that the Christmas story of Christ was already told once before. And you have to go back beyond 2,000 years ago, which is where we are with Jesus, and go another couple thousand years back to the Exodus, where you see the Christmas story told first. And if you understand the story of the Exodus, if you understand the coming of the first baby, then you will understand the significance of the second baby, if you will, the birth of Jesus Christ. And then you'll have something to tell your children. And then you'll have something to tell anyone who asks you, what is the reason for the season? No. What's the reason for Jesus? That's what we should be focused on. I don't really care what the holiday is called. What I care about is what in our hearts we really believe and what we do in our own homes, in our own little churches, with the children and the wives that we've been given, and then what we share with our neighbors, it will eventually overflow. But you've got to ask yourself, because I ask myself this, and I've had kids now for, what, seven, eight years. Do they really understand anything beyond, well, it's just Jesus. Not Santa, Jesus. I have the kids who tell everyone that Santa's not real. Okay, I'm like, hey, I've really done a good job, but wait, is there anything else? So we're going to go through Exodus And then we're going to go through the Christmas story. I'm going to show you, if we understand this is the same exact story, or perhaps a story, part of a larger story, then suddenly the birth of Christ has a tremendously more significance for us, or should. Let's see. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 1. We're going to fly through pretty quickly. So if you have a Bible, um, you will need it. If you don't have a Bible, I think we have some on the back table. We should. But Exodus chapter 1, we're going to talk about the first baby that came. And I'm going to kind of summarize, and then I'm going to go to Jesus and talk about the second baby. So here we go. First and foremost, we have a world in the beginning of Exodus that's in darkness. So bad, these people have been slaved for 400 years. They've been beaten, and the reason they're being beaten and enslaved is so their population goes down. They're trying to control them. They're trying to kill them off. There's too many of them. They're feeling threatened by them. 
And it gets so bad that they try to kill the children at birth. The Pharaoh tells the maternity, the, the, the nursemaids or the, the women who are giving birth, helping the women give birth, I should say, to kill the male children as they come out. And by God's grace, they're protected. By God's grace, that doesn't happen. And he instills basically an entire national policy inviting all Egyptians to participate in killing male children and throwing them into the Nile. Under probably two years old. So you have a dark, dark, dark situation for God's people. It is oppressive. It is terrible. But then a baby is born. A baby in the midst of this darkness comes in and he pierces the darkness, if you will, and God says why he came. It says in Exodus 2, God heard their groaning. He heard their, their cry for their pain. He heard them. He knew what they were going through and he acted. And he says that he acted because he remembered, even back forth, his covenant, his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He had made a promise to these people. He wasn't going to leave them. Even though it seemed like he was silent for so long, he had heard. And so he sends this child and he protects this child. And this child is put in a basket by the mom, right? And the child floats down the Nile. And the sister's watching this baby float down the Nile. And it's taken by a Pharaoh's daughter, one of the daughters of Pharaoh. And he instantly becomes this prince. He goes from being nothing to a prince. And he is this prince of Egypt, raised in Egypt, learns all the skills to be an Egyptian, everything in terms of being the, the military prestige or the military skills that he would need to know, perfect education, all the food he could want, everything. He's got the life of a prince. And he sees one day, as he's older, his people suffering. He identifies with people made for the first time. And he looks out, he sees their oppression. And he does something, some would say, kind of foolish. But he sees a Hebrew getting beaten. And he goes and he kills the Egyptian beating this Hebrew. And Hebrews talks about why he does this. We think, well, he was impetuous, maybe a little bit. He had a violent spirit in him, maybe a little bit. But what Hebrews says is this. In Hebrews 11.25, he says that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He chose a life, what became of a blue-collar shepherd, to be with his people, really to be identified as a slave, than to be this prince. Hebrews says he chose it. It wasn't just, oops. He chose to do this. And then... He lives a life for 40 years as a shepherd. And then God shows up one day in this burning bush and says, I want you to deliver my people. And he tells him in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, he says, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good, broad land, a land flowing milk and honey. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. You are going to be the one to deliver. And he goes on further. What am I going to do? And he says it in Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to deliver you with great acts of judgment. You are going to go before Pharaoh, do some incredible wonders. We've seen 
Six of them so far. My wrath will be poured out. You will see my miracles, everything from frogs to gnats to blood, all kinds of things. And these are my miracles to go before to show that I am God. And in verse, I'm sorry, chapter 6 again, God says, why are you doing this? And he said, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And so he says, I'm going to make my name known. So this baby who comes into the darkness, this baby who was to fulfill the promise he'd already made to their dads a long time ago, this baby who's preserved as a prince, this baby who decides to become a slave, this baby who's now going to go before Pharaoh and be the deliverer from this terrible tyrant, probably the most powerful man in the, na- in the world at the time. You're going to deliver us from this terrible slavery. How are you going to do that? I'm going to do incredible signs and wonders. Why are you going to do this? To make the name of God known, the character of God known, that He's a God who does not forget His promises. He's a God who will save His people. His God is powerful enough. He's a God who loves. And so the baby does that. And we haven't finished it yet, so I'll ruin the story for you. But the baby comes and he does deliver his people. And after they go through the Red Sea, he eventually goes on top of Mount Sinai and God delivers him the law to say, here's the law that we can have relationship with each other. And we'll be able to worship. You'll be able to worship in the way that you need to worship. So he delivers them out. He gives them the law. And finally, as you see the end of Exodus, the very last verses of Exodus, God says, I want to dwell with my people. So he builds the Ark of the Covenant. And under God's instructions, you know, Indiana Jones, Ark of the Covenant, okay? Where his presence will rest and reside with his people. And he will go before, and you see the whole Old Testament. At the end of Exodus, the last verses, they get this built. They built this kind of portable tabernacle thing. It's like us, okay? You know, put up a church every, every week or wherever they plant. They put the Ark of the Covenant in there. There's certain sections that they can't go in, and the high priest will go in and whatnot. And as they build this for the first time, in verse four, uh, chapter 40, the last chapter of Exodus, says this, the cloud, they've been led at this point through a cloud, a pillar of cloud at night, I'm sorry, during the day, and then a cloud, pillar of fire at night said, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God finally dwells with His people, and is with His people, and He leads His people. And you see the entire Old Testament, where as they go in, Moses dies right before they go in the promised land. And they take this, and Joshua takes the Ark of the Covenant, and it leads them into battle. And they, they, uh, whenever they go against any enemy, they are led by the Ark of the Covenant. And that is where the presence of God resides. That is where they look and they see our God dwells with us. Our God, uh, the, the priest goes in there yearly and makes atonement for the sins for the people. That is the relationship, the connection with them, and God dwells with them. And right before Moses died, though, Right before he died, or shortly before he died, he said that God is going to raise someone else just like me. He tells them. In Deuteronomy 18, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, 
and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And they wait for this guy to come for hundreds and hundreds of years. And as you look at the Old Testament, kings rise and kings fall. Prophets rise, prophets fall, they get all kinds of idolatry. Israel falls into captivity, they get out of it, their cities are destroyed, they go back and rebuild them, and they have this time waiting for ultimate deliverance. I mean, they've been delivered. The Exodus happens. They're always talking about, remember what happened in the Exodus. Remember, but it seems like the deliverance was incomplete. Like it was just the first chapter in a longer story. And it's clear that although they've been freed from their political oppressor, they are very much, like us, still enslaved to their sin. The Old Testament for so many years for me was a story of like, I didn't even like reading it because every time I opened it, it would seem like it was like a genealogy of, you know, this guy begat this guy, begat this guy, begat that guy. And I was like, my gosh, that's just a lot of begatting. It was really boring. But I also believed that it was full of these perfect people. But what was so comforting is if you actually read the Old Testament, you'll find that it's so full of some messed up families, evidence of the enslavement they still are to sin. And it's very comforting in some respects, not that my family's really messed up, but let's be honest, we're pretty broken people a lot of time. And so it was comforting to see that these people weren't yet fully freed, and there was something else coming. And so as the story unfolds, as we get closer to what is the second, I'm going to say, Christmas story, we see that the exit was simply a foreshadowing of things that were to come. And let me prove it to you. Hebrews chapter 3. There's this connection between Moses and Christ that the Bible makes. And it is um, intended because at Christmas, as strange as it is, our mind is to go back to Exodus. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly, heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that are to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over the house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So it simply says that Moses was a servant, and he did God's work, and he was the baby to deliver, but Jesus is completely different. He is similar, but yet different and infinitely greater. But you'll see that these stories mirror each other, so that if we think about the birth of Christ, it should remind us of the birth of Moses, which was the beginning of their freedom. That's where we're going. To begin, first of all, there's another darkness. Very similar. Herod, who, Pharaoh obviously is Egyptian. Herod's a Jew. And it's interesting that 
The Bible says very often that Jesus came to his own people and he was denied by his own people. And in this case, the Jewish nation itself, under Herod, oppresses in the same way that the evil Egyptian dictator did. It begins in Matthew chapter 2. The wise men, you know the wise men, the three wise guys, they were supposed to go to Herod. They did go to Herod because that's the appropriate thing to do politically. When you're coming through someone's nation and you're not from it, they go and they talk about this baby. And he's like, yeah, why don't you tell me when you find the baby? I'm just curious. I want to go worship him. He had a very different ulterior motive. And the wise men go, they find the baby, and they go, mm, ain't going to tell Herod, and they take off. Herod finds out, and Matthew 2 says this, and Herod, when he saw it, he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time they had ascertained from the wise men. So they figured out when the star had appeared, the wise men told them. He said, anyone was born on that day, two years back, kill them. Sounds very similar to the darkness that Moses came into, where children again are being killed, where the political system, the leadership of the world, so to speak, is threatened. So you have another baby born to pierce the darkness. And you have another baby, the father of John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist, going around baptizing people, right? The father of John the Baptist's name was Zechariah. And Zechariah was a high priest, and he went in, and basically God told him, you're going to have a son, and he didn't believe him. He's like, okay, you're not talking until it happens. So he stopped talking. He's like, name him John when he gets born. And so eventually the son is born, and he, obviously, his wife did get pregnant. son is born. He says, name the kid John. Doesn't say it, but writes it on something. And instantly he begins to speak and he prophesies. And he says, this is the kind of the precursor, the guy that's going to announce the coming Savior. And he says, particular, just like Exodus, who said, the baby came because I've remembered my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 says the same thing. He says, this baby has come to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, an oath that he swore to a father, Abraham, to grant us that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Same story that goes again. The baby who is a prince becomes a blue-collar carpenter. Because this baby, as Isaiah, who is a prophet way back when, before all this happened, a very well-known verse that people kind of declare during Christmas season all the time and then never think about it half the time. Isaiah 9-6 says this, "For For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Jesus, this little baby, this teeny little baby, is God in human flesh. And we always look at him like this cutesy little baby. We make fun of the baby Jesus. But this is God in human flesh. And in Philippians chapter 2, it says that, I'll just read it or I'll butcher it. Speaking of Jesus, in verse 6 and 7, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself nothing. 
taking the form of a servant or a slave, being born in the likeness of men. So this prince, much like the prince of Moses, comes down. And I don't think we can fathom. It's easy to think of, oh yeah, Prince Moses becomes a shepherd. Okay. Can we really fathom the infinite God coming down into finite flesh? And not coming down as a king. Not coming down as a prince. Not coming down as some super celebrity. Coming down as a carpenter. The son of a carpenter. And living among the people for 30 years. And he lived so much like a, quote, normal Joe, that for 30 years, no one knew the difference. No one knew the difference. The prince becomes a slave. And you have another baby who was called to deliver from not a political king. That's what the Jews wanted. That's what they thought was going to happen. That was the big problem. They come, oh, you're going to be king. When he came on the donkey in Jerusalem the last week of his life, and they're like, oh, Hosanna. Oh, the king is here. They thought he was going to take over. He was in there clearing stuff out, kicking Rome. That Rome was controlling everything. And they're like, this is the exodus. It's happening again. I'm going to throw off Egypt. And he's like, no, this is different. He came to throw off the troop. They already thrown off the kings before. And they had plenty of kings after that. Sin was the oppressor. Joseph, his dad, by adoption, his dad was about to divorce Mary before um, or when he found out she was pregnant, which was what was expected. In fact, if you read anything about uh, Jewish kind of marriage, because she was will be considered adultery, since he'd been betrothed, she was in fact required, he was in fact required by law to divorce her. And in many ways, he uh, went against that, obviously, and they went away. But he did that only because an angel showed up and told him this. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. This is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. In a dream, he came to him and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her, Holy, in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and he shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save people from Rome. He will save, no, he will save people from their sins. See, the thing that churches make the biggest mistake, I think, and because I'm in a church and my pastor a church, I guess I can say this. So we get so worked up about trying to fix things on the outside. I grew up in many legalistic churches where they had rules trying to make you behave and do all these things, and it never actually touched the heart anywhere. I can get my son to behave perfectly with lots of persuasive techniques, but it's not going to change his heart. It's not going to change his heart. Jesus came, this baby Jesus came because our behavior is not going to change until our hearts change. And the beauty of it is that we can't change that ourselves. We're not the ones that take that stone heart and go, I'm done. Give me my heart of flesh now. You can't operate on yourself like that. And so he comes to save us from our sins. And it's another baby who's going to do the works of God. In John chapter 5, Jesus keeps on saying, look, 
The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works of the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I'm doing here bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Just like Moses. Coming in saying, I'm telling you, look at the works. That proves who I am. That proves what I'm saying is true. But his ultimate goal was the same thing as Moses. It's another baby to make God's name known. In John 17, right before he died, Jesus prayed, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. I've shown them their na- your name. They know your name. I've shown them your character. And I believe it was Philip who said, Show us the Father. Show us the Father. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long? And you haven't gotten it yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Prophets came, and God spoke through them for years and years and years. But when Jesus showed up, that was a full deal, the full expression. You want to know who God is? Jesus. You want what God is like? Jesus. There is no Christ is God-like, but God is Christ-like. In fact, there is no unchristness about God, if you will. It's all there. But it was a baby not to deliver a new law. It was a baby to come and to fulfill the law completely and perfectly so that people would no longer be worshipers out of what might amount to duty. Because let's be honest. If you, as a Christian, worship and go to church and read your Bible out of only duty, you've lost. If, as a Christian, you share your faith out of duty, you've lost. Because what it's supposed to be is evidence of a changed heart, evidence of an understanding of the love of God. And so you tell the world. You tell the world. It's a natural response to worship things you like. When we don't sit and watch a football game, when someone does something awesome and go, well, technically that was very good, and start analyzing it, you're like, ah, ah!" because it's just, you see it. You're in awe of it. That's supposed to be a reaction with Christ. But God, we'll close with this. Since the fall of the Garden of Eden, here's something to think about. This is so difficult for me, and I read a children's book recently that got me to think differently about it. God has been on a mission since the beginning to save his people. And the Exodus was the first chapter to declare what it's actually going to look like when it happens. And I don't remember if you guys know about the whole story of the Garden of Eden. I'm hoping some of you know about the Garden of Eden, right? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, ate what they weren't supposed to eat. Sin came into the world as they disobeyed God and they decided we don't need God, we're going to do our own way. And as there's a little bit of a very small time period where they're in the garden still. And God, speaking as the Trinitarian God, says, uh, we've got to kick him out of here. And I always thought about that. Why are they kicking him out? This seems kind of mean. They're already cursed. Let them have some good food. He says, lest they eat from the tree of life. And live forever. That doesn't sound like a bad thing. Well, it's a horrible thing if you're sinful and broken. Because what they would have done if they 
hadn't been kicked out of the garden, was eating the tree of life and continued in their brokenness and sin forever. But he pushed them out into the darkness, if you will. He pushed them out of this beautiful garden into the chaos. And he went with them in many ways because he had a plan. And in order for that plan to be completed, he didn't want us to sit in our sin and brokenness forever. He wanted salvation that he might dwell with us. That he might have relationship with us. Exodus said it first. Exodus 29, 45-46. I will dwell among the people. I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And another baby makes it possible in an entirely different and more complete way because he is Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is God with us. So we no longer are following a, an ark, if you will. It's different. The birth of Jesus, if we simply, I think, ignore the Exodus and we just talk about the first Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, for me personally, it makes the Christmas a little, a little meaningless, maybe not cheap necessarily. But it becomes a tradition we knew every single year without really knowing why. And we feel guilty about it too. Because we tell our kids, at least I'll speak for myself, we tell our kids the 20 reasons why Santa is Satan. I have them. We spend our time arguing over titles like winter holiday and Christmas break and things of that nature. We fight over putting up nativity scenes or not putting up nativity scenes. We make sure, like I said, we pray right before we open presents because that's kind of what we, we feel guilty. But I think our true feelings about Christmas are really reflected in, do we really know what's the reason for Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The season is, you know, he's the, he's the reason for the season. Yes. But what's the reason for Jesus? There's a difference between throwing Jesus a birthday party and being in awe at the awesome, unimaginable love of a holy God who comes down to save us from our brokenness. And if you don't think you're broken, you're joking yourself. Stop sinning. Argument done, right? Okay? We're all broken. And the crazy thing about this whole story is that God could have called it quits a long time ago. He owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. He created the world. We said, up yours, and walked away. And he pursued us. And in the Exodus, he delivers the people so that eventually he can deliver us in the same exact way and give us freedom and have relationship with us. And he owes us none of that. And he does it in the most unimaginable, amazing, incredible way. He's not the Greek God who stands up there with his little marionette strings orchestrating everything. He comes down as a peasant carpenter to die and live as us. That we might live with Him. And so throwing Him a birthday party is a real great thing, but there's a completely different response I think we should have. One celebrates 
the season with a little bit of Jesus mixed in? Huh? You got like a Jesus sign in your house? You know, you got the nativity that you dust off and put out once a year. Right? Then, the other perspective, I guess, causes us to be so humbled that it puts us on our knees like it did the wise men. I'm so impressed by the wise men. I'm going to read the wise men's response to this baby Jesus. It wasn't like, oh, baby Jesus, thank you for saving us. It wasn't like that. Here's what it was. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. This will blow your whole idea of nativity out of the the water. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Imagine that scene. Little baby Jesus. And they fall down before him and worship him. Why? Because he is Emmanuel. A man who's really good. No, he is God. He is God who owes us nothing but gives us everything. It is the Exodus story for us. It is the beginning of of our freedom. John 3.16 is the verse that you've all heard. For God so loved. Notice it doesn't say God was so obligated. God was anything. But God so loved the world that he gave. And you go, God doesn't give him anything. He gave you the most he could give. He gave himself. He gave himself. I'm, I'm surprised that we really think that any of the things we have um, are ours. But God gave, gave himself that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In the birth of Christ, we have the signal that God has heard us that God knows our plight, that God knows we're broken, and He hasn't left us alone, and He is a God who acts and does something. And in the crucifixion of that same child, of the Son, the baby dying that cross, is the same deliverance, the crushing of the Pharaoh, the destruction of all the chariots and the horses through the Red Sea. It is the crushing of our sin. You no longer have to be plagued by sin. And death has no sting because the baby has died. And he rose from the dead to prove who he was. And today we are not led around like the Exodus with a God in a box somewhere. God is outside the box. When Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in half because now, through faith in Christ... He indwells in us. In my favorite verse, Galatians 2.20, I, excuse me, lose my voice, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is what we celebrate. That is the first exodus. That is the second exodus. It is the beginning of our freedom. And I pray that this year, instead of telling your kids, which is not bad, that Santa is evil, or that stockings are bad, 
or just praying for a couple minutes before, which is still a good thing. You talk about the freedom. And everything you see in Exodus, the bondage that we have, we were in darkness, and he released us from it. And we celebrate it through communion every single week. And we almost should be celebrating the birth of Jesus all year because it is our own birth into new life. And if you don't know Christ, I pray that today you just frankly just admit you're a sinner because everyone else can see it. You can see mine. I can see yours. We're broken. And the other thing you've got to admit is you can't fix yourself. You can't fix yourself. The world out here, the snow has shown me that I am not in control of anything. But at the same time, I get so frustrated. Caitlin can tell you how stressed out I've been, thinking I'm in control. Thinking I can orchestrate things. And the snow, like something the world stops, you're not able to do anything. You begin to realize how small you are. But no matter how small we are, we have a God who is big who loves us in a way we can't possibly imagine. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us this year to see the, the exodus in the Christmas story. Father, to see the birth of Jesus as a signal of our God who promises to save us to save us from more than a bad nation, to save us more from just snow, but to save us, Lord, from the brokenness within us, the stuff we can't touch and see and fix if we want to. I pray, Father, today that we will remember in a new and fresh way the birth of your Son and see, Father, for maybe the first time how sinful we are how broken we are, how in need we are, and yet how much you love us, how much you love us. Your son's precious blood, we pray. Amen.